This is Talk RL Podcast. All reinforcement learning, all the time. Interviews with brilliant folks from across the world of RL. I'm your host, Robin Chohan. Ben Eisenbach is a PhD student in the machine learning department at Carnegie Mellon University. He was a resident at Google Brain and studied math and computer science at MIT. He co-founded the ICML Exploration in Reinforcement Learning Workshop. Ben, thanks for joining us today. Of course. I'm glad to be here. So how do you describe your area of focus? I'm interested in a number of areas of reinforcement learning. The question I'm most interested about is the dependence of reinforcement learning on human supervision. So when we want to get a robot or a self-driving car or some autonomous agent to perform some task, we need to tell it what to do. And we have a number of tools for telling it what we want to do. We can design some reward function, we can constrain its actions, we can provide it some demonstration. And all of these types of supervision cost time. Iterating on experiments, trying to modify and tweak our reward function, trying to change the observation space, all of these things take a lot of time. And so the problem I'm most excited about is figuring out how we can reduce the number of human hours that go into getting our robots and getting our self-driving cars and other machines to learn tasks that we want them to learn. I'd be really excited to see plots and papers show not num- amount of time that it took the robot to learn the task, but amount of time that it took a human to teach the robot to perform the task. So that's broadly what I'm interested in. So that topic doesn't come up that often. I mean, I'm trying to think of a paper where I've seen uh, records of how many hours were spent by humans. Is it, is it a metric that, uh, that you think could be, um, could be a widespread metric? I hope so. I think it's a hard metric to use sometimes because you have to normalize for different factors. If some an industry, if someone has 10 excess compute as some other company, then maybe you need to spend more researcher time, human time, to get the robot to do the thing. But I do think that it's, even if we can't actually show that plot in paper, it's something useful to be aiming for. Would the holy grail um, for you be RL that requires no human time or just very uh, is very judicious with human time? Exactly, yeah. I would love if I could go into the lab one day, take the robot, show it a couple demonstrations, or send it a couple YouTube videos ahead of time, and have it be able to very quickly learn new tasks. Even if that means I show the robot a couple demonstrations, or give it a, some pieces of a reward function, lock it in a closet, and then come back a month later, and only then it's learned the task. Because to me, the time that the robot spends learning by itself locked in the closet is very cheap. So you're doing your PhD. Now, I always wondered what it was like as a PhD student in terms of the relationship with, with your advisor. Can you say, tell, share with us a bit about how that, how that relationship works? Sure. So I'm co-advised. I have two advisors, Ruslan Salakutinov here at CMU and Sergey Levin at UC Berkeley. One thing I really like about my relationship with my advisors is that they provide complementary sets of skills and expertise. If I just pick one word to describe my area of research, I'd say deep reinforcement learning. A very crude approximation of my advisors is Russ Salakutinov does deep learning and Sergey Levin does reinforcement learning. And so together, the intersection of them is deep reinforcement learning, which is exactly where I lie. Cool. So let's talk about some of your recent papers. Great. So the first one is search on the replay buffer, bridging motion planning and reinforcement learning. Can you describe the general idea um, of this paper? Absolutely. 
I'm going to take a historical perspective for a second. The control community and the robotics community and the reinforcement learning community have won robots to perform long horizon tasks for a really long time. Classically, there have been sort of two ways of getting robots to solve problems. The first set of techniques are symbolic approaches or planning-based approaches. They say we have some certain number of states, discrete, and we're going to try to find a path that goes from our current state to some target state. And algorithms for doing this include Dijkstra's algorithm, A-star, probabilistic roadmaps, and things of that nature. The other school of learning methods, connectionist methods, take a more views states in a more continuous fashion and say, we'll just throw function approximators at the problem and hope they solve it. So from this, we get algorithms like DQN, like reinforce, and most of modern reinforcement learning. The goal of this project was to try to figure out how we can take a number of those tools from the planning community and make them applicable to deep reinforcement learning algorithms. And so the way we went about doing that was by noting that planning algorithms reason over long horizons very, very well. Graph search is a remarkably competitive and fast algorithm. But on the flip side, these planning approaches don't scale to high-dimensional observations very well. And this manifests itself in a couple ways. For one, given, say, a couple images, it's hard to determine what action you should take to go from one image to another image. And the second is, it's often hard to figure out whether how far apart two images are, how far apart two observations are. For example, maybe you have a robot in your kitchen and it's looking at the, the bottom part of a cupboard, and maybe you have an image of your bathroom and there is a similar looking cupboard. Now you know, as a human, that your kitchen and your bathroom are fairly far away from each other. But for the robot that's just looking at an image of a door, it has to have a rather nuanced sets of perceptions to be able to detect this is the kitchen cupboard versus this is the bathroom cupboard. And this is exactly where the tools of function approximation can uh, be helpful. So I, I love this combination of classical planning um, on one side and, and RL on the other side. Um, I, in a previous life, I actually did build A-star algorithms for transportation. How did this, this idea for this uh, paper come about and and what was what was kind of the journey like from the initial conception to to what we what we what we saw published? That's a really good question. I guess we started exploring a couple different areas. So one area I was interested in is this general notion of uh, multitask reinforcement learning or goal conditioned RL. And the idea of goal conditioned RL is that you have some agent that takes as input not only an observation of the world, but some notion of a goal or an image of what the world should look like. And the robot has to take actions to convert the world from its current state into the state that, into the goal state. So for example, in a navigation example, this might involve walking from one room to another room. Or in a manipulation example, this might mean stacking a whole bunch of blocks on top of each other such that they look like the desired tower. So this idea of goal condition reinforcement learning has been around for a really long time. The, over the past five years or so, there's been a lot of progress in making more robust goal condition RL algorithms. And so one of the starting points for this project was thinking about if we assume goal condition RL works, 
if we have this tool in our toolbox, what can we build? And one of the things came, that came to mind is if we have procedure that can navigate from one state to some other state, maybe we can somehow use this tool many, many times to solve complex tasks. Okay, so that was the uh, kind of the setting where it seemed like this something like this would be appropriate. How did you get started? And, and did you, did you um, did your first ideas about how to do this, was it the same as what you ended up with? Or was there some uh, changes and iterations along the way? Good question. So this is one of those sort of weird projects where the first thing we tried basically worked, but then things got harder as we scaled. So when we first had this idea kicking around, I implemented it on a very simple 2D navigation task. On this task, learning how to reach for how to navigate from one state to a nearby state worked very well. And estimating the distance between two states also worked very well. And this meant that within about a week or so, we could show fairly large improvements over current state-of-the-art methods on the simple task. The challenge, however, came in scaling us up to more complex environments. I'll highlight one of the challenges there, and that was this so-called wormhole problem. Imagine that you have two states that look visually similar, but are actually very far away. For example, if we return to the kitchen cabinet versus bathroom cabinet that we talked about earlier, if the robot thinks that the kitchen cabinet and bathroom cabinet are actually close together, then when it's doing planning, it may assume that when it's in the kitchen, it can magically teleport to the bathroom because the bathroom cabinet and the kitchen cabinet look similar. And this sort of uh, wormhole problem is disastrous for planning because the plans that are produced don't make any sense. And while this wormhole problem wasn't a problem for some of the simple experiments we ran, when we started looking at more complicated environments with image-based observations, this problem did pop up. And then what about the reverse? Like, I guess any error in the distance metric is going to cause problems for, I'm just thinking of this from a classical planning point of view. So it, 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 does it ever happen that, that it thinks that two states are, are really far apart when, they, when they're actually close together? Or is it, was that pro- problem not much of an issue? Yeah. So we definitely had problems with both overestimating distances and underestimating distances. However, for the purpose of planning, underestimation is a much, much bigger problem. And to see this, we can think about the number of paths from one state to another state. In most reasonable tasks, there are an exponential number of paths from one state to another state. And there might be even be an exponential number of relatively short paths. And so if we spuriously predict that two states are further away than they actually are, this may mean that we ignore some of those paths. But there's still many, many other short paths that we could consider to get from one state to another I see, because you have so many paths as opposed to a sparse uh, network, in which case um, an overestimation distance might be a problem. But in this very dense network, it just goes around it. Exactly. For example, you can imagine navigating from the... Uh, southeast corner of New York City to the northwest corner of New York City. And someone might go and tell you, oh, there's a traffic jam on this block. And there's still many ways that you can navigate from one side of of Manhattan to the other side of Manhattan. But if someone tells you, oh, if you go to this intersection, there's a helicopter that will fly you to your destination. 
and you go to that intersection and the helicopter isn't there, then you've made a big error. In the paper, you talk about risk awareness. Um, can you say anything about how, how that works? Is that, is that um, related to the ensemble? Yes. So the risk awareness was introduced to help deal with this underestimating, overestimating distance problem. So in particular, we were worried that the agent would underestimate certain distances. And so what we said is that rather than learning a single estimate of distances, we're going to learn many estimates of all of the distances. So we learned some ensemble of distance functions. And then to get our final estimate for the distance between two states, we asked each member of the ensemble how far away these two states are. And then we took the most pessimistic estimate from the ensemble. So if any member of the ensemble saw thought that these two states were far away, then we, for the purpose of planning, pretended that these two states were far, far away. Mm, okay. And were they all trained? They were all trained, all the members of the ensemble were trained on the same data or was it like a bootstrap thing? Yeah. So the proper way to do this would have been to train each on a different subset of the data. In practice, when bootstraps are used in most of deep learning today, the random randomization and their initial weights is sufficient to lead to different predictions later on. And so we train them on the same data, but with different weight initialization. One thing that we did find fairly important there was that we couldn't share weights between members of the ensemble. So it's really tempting to say, we're training these five neural networks. Why don't we just have a single encoder shared between all of them and then separate heads for each member of the ensemble. It would have been much faster from a computational perspective. But the problem with this is that the ensembles are supposed to give us independent views of how far away two states are. And when they share an encoder, when they share weights, their predictions now become correlated. And we found that this significantly degraded performance. So uh, can you share with us, like, what size ensembles are we talking about? Were they, were they huge or just a few networks? We used three members in our ensemble. We included an ablation at the end of the paper where we actually studied how important the size of the ensemble was. And we found that two was much better than one. And three was only very slightly better than two. And so we stopped at three. Cool. And then um, your paper mentions distributional RL. I think that's like C51. Is that right? Exactly. Yes. Can you help us um, understand uh, how you used the, um, the distributional RL? I think you did something specific uh, here in, in terms of how you use the atoms. Yeah. So the distributional RL we used in our paper was actually a special case of C51. And so, as you might recall, our, first let's start with what distributional RL is. Distributional RL says that for a given state action pair, Rather than predicting your expected return, your expected future return, we're instead going to predict a distribution over your future returns. That is, we're going to predict some probability you get two rewards, some probability you get five rewards, some probability you get ten rewards, and so on. And in normal distributional RL, there's a rather complicated way to do bootstrapping with this entire distribution which involves squashing the distribution by some discount factor, 
and then splitting up the distribution, discretizing the distribution for the Bellman update. The, in our paper, we were using a rather special reward function that was minus one at every time step. And we we're using a discount factor of one. And both of these choices meant that distributional RL was significantly simpler to implement for our setting. And I don't want to go into too much of the details, but it basically just corresponded to a bit shift of the predictions. In our, in our experiments, we found that distributional RL was much more stable than using standard uh, reinforcement learning. Can you say anything about uh, exploration in, in this work? Um, was it, were you using a standard exploration or was that a challenge? Yeah, so we mostly punted on the exploration problem. We assumed that the initial state distribution, or we used environments where the initial state distribution was uniform over all states. And so this both helped make learning easier and also meant that for the purpose of planning, the states that we were planning over were uniformly distributed. One direction that I'm pretty excited about is figuring out how you could couple these sorts of planning algorithms with smarter exploration techniques. One work in this direction was done by Nikolai Savinov uh, about a year ago. And I think that's an interesting direct step in this direction. So you mentioned some um, interesting angles for, for future work in the paper. Um, do you plan to follow up any of these? Um, can you share that with us? Yes. Perhaps the biggest bottleneck in SORM was l actually learning the local policy. And so goal condition RL, despite being much better today than it was 10 years ago, is still in its infancy. And figuring out how we can make goal condition RL algorithms that work even over very small scales is a pretty hard problem. But what search on the replay buffer shows is that you actually don't need much more than that. If you can get goal condition RL working on a length scale of 10, 20 steps, then planning will be able to solve most of the rest of the problem. And so the future direction I'm perhaps most excited about is just figuring out better ways of getting goal condition RL to work. And one of the reasons why goal condition RL is an exciting problem to work on is not only because it has the potential to be used in combination with planning, but also because when we're in the multitask setting, there's much more supervision that we can leverage. A failure to solve to reach one goal or to solve one task might be a success for solving some other task. This is the intuition in the hindsight experience replay paper. It's also been explored in a number of other papers. And I'm currently working on better ways of using that insight to learn goal conditioned RL algorithms. Cool. Okay. Do you think that our brains could be doing something like this? Like in, in the SOAR paper, you're showing that two very different methods could be combined to solve this problem. So when, when we approach a problem like that, uh, do you have do you have any comments about that? Like, are we using a different method to, to think about states that are nearby versus long term, long horizon kind of planning? Or is that just totally unknown at this point? I like that question. I am definitely not an expert in uh, human or animal related neuroscience. So everything I say is speculation. There's definitely been some work that says that we have two modes of thinking. There's sort of famously da Daniel Kahneman claims that we have system one and system two thinking. Other folks refer to our insect brains and our monkey brains to sort of differentiate 
high-level reasoning versus low-level reasoning. And I definitely could see that something of that nature could be going on inside their brain. I think it's also possible that while we have some sort of hierarchical structure in our brain, it's not discrete. It's not like we have the planning level and the reactive level, but rather it might be continuous. And I think an exciting area of research would be figuring out how we can design control algorithms that are continuous with respect to their level in some hierarchy. That does sound amazing. Um, okay, I can't wait to, uh, to to hear what you come up with in that department. Um, so we let's move to uh, another paper of yours. Um, diversity is all you need. Learning diverse skills without a reward function, and that was at ICLR twenty nineteen. So I remember noticing this paper. Um, I think back when it first came out, and I think it was on Professor Levin's um, Twitter feed, um, and. I remember looking at the half cheetah acrobatics and just uh, finding that so entertaining. And I, I, I couldn't wait to read the paper just after looking at that. So um, so I was, I was excited to meet you and to realize that I could talk to the author of that paper. That's kind of, uh, it's kind of a great way to close the loop. So what was, can you share with our listeners, what is the main idea of this diversity is all you need paper? We want robots to be able to do all sorts of things in the environments in which they operate. Often it's challenging to figure out what are meaningful behaviors in their environment? What are the sort of, to draw an analogy to principal component analysis, what is the basis of behaviors that exist in some environment? And the motivation for doing this is that if we could somehow look at a robot interacting in an environment and say, there are, say, 10 principal behaviors that it can do, 10 motion primitives to draw an analogy to some of the older robotics literature. We could then assemble these ingredients, these primitive behaviors into more complex behaviors to solve new tasks much more rapidly. To uh, look at it from a slightly different angle, while the number of parameters in our neural networks that, that are used for control might be on the order of millions, the number of useful or meaningful motion primitives might be on the order of dozens. And so if we can learn to control by composing these motion primitives or these skills, we should be able to learn significantly faster than if we have to directly tune the parameters of some neural network. And so the motivation for this project was, given some environment, return some set of motion primitives or some set of skills that can be used and ensembled to solve arbitrary tasks more quickly. How is diversity measured and defined in this context? I'll explain it via a game. So there's, there's often used as a team building game uh, for humans. So let's imagine that you have two players and they're on a team and they stand at opposite ends of a football field. And the goal is for them to communicate a message from one end of the football field to the other end of the football team. And the only thing they can do is they can jump up and down, they can wave their hands around, they can try to spell out letters with their arms. So let's say that one player is trying to send a message to the other player. We measure diversity as how well those players can communicate a message across the field, where the first player is trying their best to act out whatever message they're trying to send, and the other player is trying their best to discern what exactly is my teammate trying to spell out? What exactly are they trying to convey? 
So that's a game that they're playing. It's like a communication game. But what is there some, if I'm understanding this correctly, is there something that's encouraging to have them to have many signals as opposed to just having the, oh, the, oh they figured out how to do that one signal and to communicate that effect? Yeah. In this game, the player that is sending messages is given different messages to send. They might be given hundreds of different messages that they have to send. And if that player that's sending the message always does exactly the same thing, then they'll only be able to convey one message. For example, if the only thing that this player does is jump up and down, then the other player will have no idea what message they're sending. But if they have many different ways of jumping up and down, or they know how to do some cartwheels, or spell out a couple letters with their arms, spell out YMCA, for example, then there are many more messages that they could send across the football field. The messages that are being sent uh, in terms of the waving of the arms, are these the states that the agent's visiting? Yeah, so to make the analogy, or sort of complete the analogy, in the reinforcement learning setting, we have some agent interacting with an environment, and the agent is going to play this game with itself. So the agent is going to take some actions to visit some states, and then internally, there's a part of the agent, we called it the discriminator, that looks at these states and tries to infer what message was I trying to send. And so the behaviors are the sequence of actions that the agent takes, and the messages are some sort of codes. Because the robot's just talking to itself, these codes don't have to correspond to English sentences. And in our setting, we actually just used uh, random one-hot vectors as these messages. Okay, and this sounds kind of related to like hierarchical RL and options, but it's different, right? These, these behaviors are not options, right? Or are they? So the behaviors that we learned are similar in the sense that they can be composed hierarchically to solve more complex tasks. So we included one experiment at the end of our paper where we showed how after learning the set of skills, we could... Uh, learn some high-level policy that every, say, 100 time steps told us which of your skills to use to try to maximize some reward. One of the key differences, though, is that in the options framework, or in most other hierarchical RL, the low-level primitive skills are learned to maximize the reward function. And this is useful in some settings because it provides a reward, some reward signal for learning these low-level skills. But it's also challenging because it means that the low-level skills you learn on one task cannot necessarily be used to solve some other task. And so the key difference is that in diversity is all you need. The skills that we were learning were not learned with respect to a single reward function. Rather, they were task agnostic. And that meant that you could use them to solve many downstream tasks. Of course, the downside is that they attempted to cover all possible behaviors. And if you really only cared about one type of behavior, then many of the skills you learned would be useless. For example, if you only care about running forward, then learning how to jump up and down and learning how to do backflips aren't particularly useful. We have some section of the paper where we show how you can bias the skills to accomplish certain types of behaviors. So there is some way around this if you really want to do that. So you mentioned how this is um, this agent is playing a cooperative game. Most of the times when I think when we encounter game type playing in 
RL or machine learning, at least in, from my perspective, it seems like they're mostly adversarial games. Can, can you um, say anything about the difference between adversarial and cooperative games and, and, and why the cooperative game, uh, why this, this particular instance cooperative makes sense? And, it, and I wonder, is there some um, intuition that we can get about when we want to play a cooperative game versus adversarial? That's a good question. And to be honest, I don't have a fantastic answer. One thing to note is that cooperative games are usually stable in the sense that once you've found a solution, the two players of your game will tend to stay at that solution. So for example, in this communication game that we were talking about before, once the two players have worked out some strategy for communicating messages across the football field, neither has, a, has an incentive to deviate from that strategy. Whereas in contrast, if you look at an adversarial game, the sort that's played in generative adversarial networks, or to take a more simple example, rock, paper, scissors, players do have an incentive to deviate from their current strategy. For example, if we're playing rock, paper, scissors, and you play rock, I'm going to play paper, and then you're going to play scissors, and then I'm going to play rock, and we'll keep cycling like this. So one of the benefits of dealing with cooperative games rather than competitive games is that the optimization problem might be easier. Cool. Thanks for helping us understand that. The paper says that the discriminator works on the levels of states and not trajectories. And then, but also there was a line that said, our method is not limited to learning skills that visit entirely disjoint sets of states. Can you help us understand how that works? So the trajectories don't have to be completely distinct, but hone in on those few distinct states. Is that what's happening? Exactly. Yeah. So you could imagine that maybe the agent always starts in the same state and maybe there isn't that much you can do at the beginning of an episode. For example, maybe the agent always starts in some narrow hallway and the only thing it can do with this narrow hallway is walk to the end of the hallway. And so while the agent is in this hallway, it's really hard to tell what message it's trying to send or what skill is being executed. But let's say that at the end of the hallway, there's a big open field and there are many things the agent can do once it gets to this field. It can jump up and down, it can do backflips, it can play a game of soccer. The part that we were trying to explain in that part of the paper was saying that it's okay if there are certain states where you can't tell what skill the agent is doing, as long as there are other states, say states in the future, where you can tell which skill the agent is using. Now, we also had that point about discriminating on the level of states rather than trajectories. And the point there was mostly an implementation detail. We said that when we're going to infer what skill we're using, we're going to make a prediction for every state action pair, and then we're going to ensemble all of these predictions together. An alternative might be something like using a LSTM to read in every state and try to make a prediction, but it's much harder to train recurrent models than these sort of bagging models. And so we ended up using something simpler there. Uh, that said, there has been follow-up work, I believe it's the Valor paper, that looks at learning skills conditioned on entire trajectories. But how did he get to that position? There could have been uh, uh, you know, a, a set of different states uh, one step before. So maybe like a one-step state transition. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think there's, it's sort of fun to think about the sort of family of algorithms that are conditioned on some aspect of the behavior. And from that aspect of the behavior, they try to infer 
what skill is being used. So in our paper, this aspect of the environment was just a bag of states, looking at each state and predicting what skill was being used. You could look at an entire trajectory of states and try to infer what skill is being used. And this would allow you to discern the Michael Jordan dunk from other sorts of the Kobe Bryant dunk. I don't, maybe they have different dunk techniques. You also could look at, say, the initial state and the current state. And what this would allow you to do is see how the skill changes the state. And you can imagine this might be useful if you're hoping to chain many skills together in sequence. And there are many other ways you could imagine discriminating skills based on other aspects of trajectories. You could look at cumulants, you could look at actions, you could look at running averages or other functions. So I think it's a fairly exciting area to try to sit down and enumerate all these different ways of discriminating skills and thinking about when each would be most appropriate. Sounds like the properties of a seminal paper. Like there's just so many directions to go from here, which is awesome. Any follow-up work uh, plans um, in this direction from you, Ben? One thing that I've been looking into a little bit recently is figuring out how we can more intelligently use these sorts of discriminability ideas in service of maximizing a reward. That is, how could we use something like Diane in the inner loop of a current state-of-the-art RL algorithm? Could we somehow use this for better exploration or for better policy improvement? It's still very, very much in its early stages, but I think it has some promise. So I got to meet you in Vancouver at your in Europe's 2019 poster uh, for the SOAR paper. And I remember thinking um, that you should be you should be a teacher. Yeah. Because I thought you're, you, you explain so well. Uh, you explain as if you actually want us to understand, not not just like you're um, just checking the box of like, yeah, the expl- explanation has been sent, but you actually want, want us to understand, which I, I actually love and it comes through so clear. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. So it makes total sense that you are head TA for the Deep RL course uh, at CMU. What's that like? Can you share a little bit about um, about the course? I think it's looking at the syllabus. It looks like uh, it covers a lot. Yeah. So that was the so CMU has two uh, reinforcement learning courses. That was the graduate offering, and there's an undergraduate offering of a very similar course in the spring. And so as the TA, I helped design part of the syllabus. Um, I gave one or two of the lectures and organized most of the assignments and grading. Uh, we had a team of fantastic TAs that helped uh, with many of the day-to-day logistics of running office hours and helping with the grading. Do you have any advice for people who are trying to teach this stuff? I think one thing that's a bit challenging about many seminar courses and, or many courses that survey a number of recent algorithms is that When we write research papers, we write them to highlight novelty. That is, we highlight all of the ways in which our work is different from prior work. But for the purpose of teaching, it makes a lot more sense to emphasize the similarities. And so one of the things that I tried to do in recitations and in lectures and in assignments was to highlight that many of the algorithms that we learn in this course are built from the same building blocks. And I think that this mindset helps cope with the enormous number of papers that are published on RRL almost every day. If we can discern what the underlying ingredients of each paper are, 
at least for me, that makes it much easier to understand what the core contribution of the paper is. That is, instead of saying this is a really complex paper, I can see it's, oh, it was this other paper plus two or three tweaks. Sort of mathematically, if the number of ingredients from which we build algorithms grows linearly, then the number of possible algorithms, the number of possible ways of combining these ingredients in new ways would grow exponentially. And so being able to infer the ingredients from which algorithms are built seems like a fairly powerful way of understanding algorithms. That makes a lot of sense. That's kind of related to one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast is because I want to understand RL in more and more depth. And I was finding that um, resources to connect the dots between the different subfields and the different papers and the different perspectives uh, were really hard to find. It just seemed like there was so much that that went unsaid if you only looked at written material or, or lectures. Absolutely. And not saying that I'm an expert on this at all, but I do think that it's helpful to figure out how do we connect all these dots? Because most of the dots are often closer than we think. So you co-founded the ICML Exploration in Reinforcement Learning Workshop. Um, can you say a bit about that? How did you come to, to co-found that workshop? Yeah, so that was with Surya Bhupati Raju. And we started that when we were both part of the Google Brain residency. I guess that was early 2018. And the motivation for doing it was simply that there's a fair amount of work on exploration RL, but it often is fairly disjoint. And we we're hoping to gather together a whole bunch of the folks working on exploration to have a conversation, to exchange ideas, to figure out how do we move the field forward? One of the primary aims of the workshop was to figure out how do we even measure success? What is the right metric for exploration? And it was fun to see over the two years that we had the workshop, what different metrics various people proposed. So do you feel like we are closer to having that figured out now? Closer, but still a long way off from the solution. Well, it's not, it's not the simplest problem, I guess. So we had from, from DeepMind, we had the B-suite that came out a while back. And I guess that part of that was about exploration. Absolutely, yeah. And one of the things I liked about the B-suite is that they propose a number of different metrics. And I think that sort of highlights that it's often unclear exactly what we want from exploration. And so maybe it does make sense to not be optimizing for a single metric, but for a set of eight metrics. Um, do you have any comments on general approaches um, to exploration in RL these days? Yeah. So I think there are probably three or four different broad classes of techniques. And in each technique, there's definitely areas for improvement. So I think, so one main area is adding noise. Adding noise in one of many ways. So epsilon greedy just adds noise to the action. In algorithms like DDPG, we add noise that's correlated across time to the actions. There were two papers in, I think, 2015, maybe, noisy nets and parameter space noise that add noise not to the actions, but to the parameters of the actor. And so I think this is sort of one class of methods, and it's fun to think about where else might we add noise, or how can we tune the noise automatically? There was one paper a year or two ago uh, by Abhishek Gupta that looked at automatically tuning the noise added for exploration. A second class of techniques look at trying to capture uncertainty. These are often done by trying to figure out where is our policy or our queue function most uncertain, and then rewarding the policy for going to states where this uncertainty is high. And then maybe a third set of approaches are those that learn some density model of where the agent has already been. These include not only count-based methods, but methods that learn some 
use a VAE or a normalizing flow or something to model the distribution over states and actions that the agent has been to before. And then we can use this density to form some sort of exploration bonus, either in the form of by directly rewarding the agent for going to unseen states, or by trying to look at how this density changes as the agent visits new states. And then I guess maybe one fourth type of exploration method are those based on posterior sampling. And there, rather than trying to learn a single policy or a single value function, you might learn the distribution over policies, or the distribution over value functions. And things like bootstrap DQN are the prototypical example of these sorts of exploration methods. And while all these exploration methods seems kind of disjoint, I think that there actually might be, some of them might in fact be the same. And one area that would be fun to explore would be figuring out the connections between each of these four methods, or these four classes of methods. Cool. Thanks for laying that out. So it sounds like we've, we're still looking for the, uh, the holy grail of the grand unified uh, theory of exploration in RL. Yeah. One thing to note is that optimal exploration is well-defined, but is completely intractable for most problems that we care about. Do you mean that like in a, in a posterior sampling sense? I guess I mean that posterior sampling is an approximation to what's known as the Bayes optimal exploration strategy. So if we want to maximize cumulative return, there is some way to do it optimally for any MDP. Given MDP, there is some optimal exploration strategy. But actually computing this exploration strategy is extremely, extremely hard. It's hard because uh, Bayesian inference is hard? Exact Bayesian inference is hard? Is that why it's hard? It's hard because it requires reasoning about all possible belief states, which grows exponentially in the size of the number of states in your MDP. I see. So your belief space MDP is is much larger than your actual MDP. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Like a lot. <laughs> way, 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 way bigger. That makes sense. Okay. Thanks. Thanks so much for laying that out for us. Sure. Do you have any tips for us on on keeping up with the deluge of papers? There's just so many new papers, and it's it's hard. Everyone's excited about them all. I don't have the perfect solution, but I can tell you what I do. I have a giant spreadsheet of papers, and whenever anyone recommends a paper or I see an interesting paper reference somewhere. I add it to the list. And then every day I pop one or two papers off the list and read them. And I sample the papers uniformly at random. So it ends up being a mix of very new papers, very old papers, papers in between. And then I guess hope that if the paper is important enough, it will eventually come to the pop of the list. But yeah, there are way, way, way too many papers to read all of them. So random search is powerful, folks. Yep. Are there researchers you, you really admire or look up to? Yeah, I think that there are folks both on the theory and application side that do some pretty cool work. So on the application side, anyone who gets any sort of reinforcement learning to work in the real world is amazing. <laughs> so there are a couple folks that have done some reinforcement learning for healthcare. Folks like Finale Doshi Velez and Emma Brunskill. Emma Brunskill has also done some pretty neat work in doing reinforcement learning for education. That is figuring out what assignments do we give students so they can learn most quickly. Uh, I guess there's also been some work on doing reinforcement learning for optimizing batteries. And I think that was done by Stefano Armand and one of the students, Aditya Grover. I think that's also very cool. But then on the theory side, I think a lot of folks have done some pretty neat work, including Brian Zebart's done some nice work on maximum entropy reinforcement learning. 
Tom Shaw has done some very nice work on just pushing regular RL algorithms forward. And of course, I look up to both my advisors too. Do you, do you have any advice for, um, for people who look up to you? One thing I'd recommend is not being afraid to ask for help. Very often, folks want to be helpful, but they don't know how to. And if you can tell someone, oh, can you recommend three papers I can read to learn about reinforcement learning? Or, oh, what was what algorithm did you use for implementing that paper? Or can you send me the code you used for that environment? Very often, people will be happy to say yes. And so just asking for help, I think, is one of the most useful skills. I'm sure there are other things too, but that's the first thing that comes to mind. So besides um, the things that you mentioned uh, already in our chat, are there um, papers or trends in RL generally that, that you think are really interesting uh, more recently? One trend that I'm pretty excited about is using VR setups to collect human demonstrations. There's been maybe a half dozen papers over the past year or two. Uh, one that comes to mind is Corey Lynch's learning from play data paper. I think there are a couple others as well. And the reason why I think this is exciting is that this using VR for uh, in motion capture to provide demonstration seems a lot easier than, uh, say, designing reward functions. That is, we can provide many more bits per second of human interaction. And I think given that I suspect this trend will continue over the next couple of years, which means that very soon we'll have fairly large data sets of human demonstrations for maybe robotic manipulation, for self-driving, for maybe some other sorts of navigation tasks. And then the question will be, how do we design algorithms that can effectively learn from these large sets of unlabeled human demonstrations? And this data is interesting because it's not random data, but it's also often not labeled with the human's intentions. And so it may be the case that figuring out the right way to merge inverse reinforcement learning, that is inferring what the intention was, and reinforcement learning, trying to maximize whatever reward the user was intending to do, might be sort of cool. And so this intersection of reinforcement learning and inverse reinforcement learning might provide a way forward to solve, to handle all this motion capture data. That sounds really cool. This this um, interview is happening in in March, um, mid March, twenty twenty, which where of course we're all facing COVID, and we're hearing about conferences being canceled or or moved online. Um, apparently, ICLR is going to be a virtual conference. What do you think about these virtual conferences? I think it's an opportunity to figure out how we can how to have conferences when people are remote. So realistically, I expect the number of machine learning conferences to grow over the next couple of years. At the same time, increasing concerns about climate change and increasing demands on people's times are probably going to make it harder to travel to all these conferences. So figuring out how do we make conferences still feel exciting and engaging? How do we still have the spontaneous run into friends and collaborators and conversations in the hallway of conferences is definitely going to be a challenge. But I think it's also an opportunity to figure out, to sort of be forced to solve this problem. And I think that will probably improve conferences even after COVID is gone. Yeah, I totally agree. So at NeurIPS uh, 2019, I just couldn't believe how packed it was. And this is after they turned down, you know, a huge chunk of the people who wanted to be there. Um, 
and that's aside from from considering emissions, but just the demand for um, for being there is just so huge. On the other hand, the the online tools that I've seen so far, I mean, as much as I like Slides Live, I definitely wouldn't want to be relegated to to that experience. So trying to imagine what a rich interactive experience could be like like for me um i guess some people at neurops were like hey you know the poster sessions were crazy uh we should have some people were even saying we should have less poster sessions and more talks and i was like that's crazy because like the poster session is where i met you and i got to hear you know in depth about your work and to me that's the the most beneficial part is these poster sessions which seem like the most challenging part to scale up absolutely yeah i don't have a solution but i think forcing five thousand or ten thousand or however many folks to think hard about this problem over the next six months will result in an enormous number of human hours thought about this problem. And I'm fairly confident some folks will think of some clever solutions. Ben Eisenbach, uh, I can't wait to hear what you come up with next. And thanks so much for, for joining us here today. Thanks again, Ben. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Robin. That's our episode for today, folks. Be sure to check talkrl.com for more great episodes. 